The following message is by Pastor Steve Lee of Emmanuel Community Church. More information about the ministry of Emmanuel Community Church can be found online at www.emmanuelcommunity.org. Okay, let's get into the word for this morning. The message is continuing on in our um, Sermon on the Mount series. This is the fourth message on Matthew 5, 13 to 16, and the title is simply Salt and Light. Salt and Light. Um, I've said this a number of times, not only in this series, but um, throughout uh, my pulpit ministry at ICC, but I think there's, there's a real caution about reading the Bible as like a rule book. And I think there's something just that naturally pulls us in that direction of seeing Scripture as a list of rules that, that we need to obey. Um, Eugene Peterson in his book, Eat This Book, says this, Spiritual theology, using Scripture as text, does not present us with a moral code and tell us, quote, live up to this. Nor does it set out a system of doctrine and say, think like this and you will live well. The biblical way is to tell a story, and in the telling, invite, live into this. This is what it looks like to be human in this God-made and God-ruled world. This is what is involved in becoming and maturing as a human being. When we submit our lives to what we read in Scripture, we find that we are not being led to see God in our, story, in our stories, but our stories in God's. God is the larger context and plot in which our stories find themselves. And so what Peterson is essentially arguing is that what God is doing in the pages of Scripture is telling us a story about what he is doing in our world. And then he invites us to participate in that story. And this is what Jesus, I believe, is doing on the Sermon on the Mount, giving us a picture of what life in God's kingdom is like for those who are willing to follow him into that life. The Sermon on the Mount, in other words, is an invitation to a life under his wisdom and his leadership. And I think one of the um, problems we have in the church today is that in our theology, there is so much of a focus when we talk about salvation, on what we have been saved from. In other words, saved from sin, saved from death. And we don't consider enough what we are saved for. What we are saved for. In other words, what is the life that God has intended for us in this saved state that we live in? And I think this is what the Sermon on the Mount provides for us. One of the most comprehensive and beautiful pictures of what the redeemed life looks like that God is inviting us to. And so Jesus begins his sermon with the Beatitudes, as we've been looking at the two previous messages, showing us what God is doing. In other words, the kind of people that he is welcoming into his kingdom. It was the weak, the vulnerable, the marginalized, the rejects, the losers, the misfits. And the message that we're going to look at today 
the text for this morning has to be understood in light of that context of the Beatitudes. Because in verse 13 to 16, Jesus continues in his sermon, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. And so they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, you can't really tell from the English translation, but in the original Greek manuscript, the you is emphatic. In other words, what Jesus is saying is, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Another way that we could say it is to really capture that emphasis is, you and you alone are the salt of the earth, the light of of the world. And as we put that together with the Beatitudes, it makes this interesting picture that it is not the religious or political elite or the wealthy or even the Roman occupiers who are the important ones in God's eyes. But he's saying, you disciples who the world has labeled as the left out ones are really the ones who are going to make the ultimate difference in human history. As the Beatitudes highlighted, Jesus is saying to these bunch of people who are nobodies in Jewish society, but he says God's eyes are on you because what you do with your life will make all of the difference in human history in God's perspective. They are the ones that really matter from God's perspective. Jesus communicates the importance of their task using two metaphors of salt and light. And these images, I think the problem is, they just don't have the same impact on us as they would have to his original audience because salt and light, truthfully, are just afterthoughts to us. They're not nothing special in modern society. I remember once during a short-term mission trip to Kenya, uh, I was traveling deep into the bush uh, with some Maasai men. The Maasai are a tribe in Kenya, in the southern part of Kenya. And in those travels, they took a goat and they slaughtered it and cooked it so that we could have a meal out there in the bush. And they built a fire pit and began roasting this meat. And it smelled unbelievable. And I think it was because all of us were actually starving at that point in the journey. And it, it's hard to describe how inviting that roasting meat smelled. But the moment that I bit into it, I regretted it. And I was met with utter disappointment. Because I realized that until that moment in my life, I don't think I had ever eaten a piece of meat that had absolutely no salt on it at all. And it tasted like tree bark, okay? Um, that day... Uh, I realized how tasteless even the most delicious piece of meat can be without any salt. And with every bite of that meat, all I kept thinking was salt. I just need a little salt. But there was none to be had in that bush. 
You don't realize, in other words, how important salt is until you don't have access to it. And throughout ancient history, salt has always been an incredibly valuable commodity. Entire empires were built and destroyed because of salt. Vast highway systems were built in ancient times to transport salt from one part of the world to the other. It not only was used to flavor food, but to preserve it in the age of no refrigeration. In other words, the message is, without salt, there is no life. The human body cannot function without salt. And Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. You are an essential part of human history. We also, I think, similarly tend to take light for granted, don't we? Um, We live in a world flooded with light, no matter what time of day it is. Light is always available whenever we want it, so we don't even think about it. Again, in our years living in Kenya as missionaries, we understood how precious light is. The image is so dark you can't even see it, okay? Um, Without even realizing it, in our five years in Kenya, I, I was actually following the lunar calendar. I knew always what phase of the moon it was in any day. And the reason is because when you're on call at the hospital and you have to go from your house to the hospital in the dark, that little bit of moonlight makes all of the difference in the world. And I have to confess to you that even as an adult, when I'm walking at 3 o'clock in the morning in the pitch dark uh, across this huge eucalyptus forest that I had to walk by, uh, it was genuinely frightening sometimes. It was like a cloak or a blanket of darkness that just covered everything, and you couldn't even see your hand in front of you. That's how dark it is. And what I would see in that darkness is just the light from the pediatric ward that was shining. And as long as I kept my eyes fixed on that light, I knew I could get through this darkness and get to the hospital. The power would regularly go out in our mission station, almost sometimes nightly. And whenever the power went out, all you could do is light a lantern. And I don't know if you've ever tried to do anything under lantern light, but it stinks, okay? It is not an adequate source of light to do anything with. And I'm a night owl. I live for the night, okay? So night would come and the power would go out, and there is nothing to do when it's pitch dark and there's no electricity. So a lot of those nights, I would go to bed at like 9 p.m., you know? I would just stare at the ceiling because I can't fall asleep. And it was just a reminder of how precious light is. And that's how light would have been perceived by the people in Jesus' day without electricity. Light is life. And to that audience, Jesus says, you are the light of this world. A world blanketed with darkness. You, as my followers, are the light of this world. And the main point of these two metaphors is the incredibly important role that Christians play in the world. Just as you can't imagine life without salt or light, the world needs the witness of the church. In other words, making an impact as Christians is not optional. It is integral to our identity as followers of Jesus Christ. And I think even right there, we need to pause for a moment and ask, is that really a core part of your identity? Is the impact that you make 
in your world for Jesus. Well, what does that exactly mean when Jesus says that he intends us to be the salt and light of the world? He doesn't leave it up to us for guesswork. He actually explicitly lays it out for us in verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. In other words, the impact is through the good deeds that we do in the world that will then point people to a good God who is the creator of this world. And just earlier at the very end of the Beatitudes, he's just gone on to say how as Christians we will be persecuted and that we will be hated by the world. But somewhere in that, he also transitions into saying, by the kind of life that you live in the witness of this world, you can actually change their perception of you. And they can see the goodness of God by your behavior, by the kind of life that you live as a witness before them. In other words, there ought to be something so self-evident about what we do with our lives that causes people even outside the church to give glory to God because of his goodness, based on the things we do as a community. In other words, even though we may be misunderstood and persecuted for our faith, the good that we do in society ought to be a witness to the goodness of God. Very similarly, Peter in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 12, says, Live such good lives among the pagans, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits. Let your deeds speak for themselves as a witness to the world of a God who loves them. The call to his followers to be salt and light in the world is accompanied, though, throughout this passage by a warning that we can lose our saltiness or that we could cover the light that is in us. And his message is, if salt loses its saltiness, then what use is it anymore? What is the point of lighting a lamp if we're just going to cover it up so that no one can see in the dark? And his implication is, what about a church that has lost its witness in this world? I think we have to acknowledge something sad is that non-Christians' opinion of the church, here in America at least, is at an all-time low. According to Barna researchers among younger Americans, only 16% have a favorable view of Christianity. And only 3% think positively of evangelical Christians in this country. Yancey writes, a clear pattern soon emerged as demonstrated by many polls. The more prominently Christians entered the political arena, the more negatively they were viewed by the rest of society. An overwhelming majority of non-churchgoers associate these descriptors with Christianity. Anti-homosexual, judgmental, hypocritical, old-fashioned, too involved in politics, not accepting of other faiths, confusing. As one interviewee expressed it, quote, most people I meet assume that Christian means very conservative, entrenched in their thinking, anti-gay, anti-choice, angry, violent, illogical, empire builders. They want to convert everyone, and they generally cannot live peacefully with anyone who doesn't believe what they believe. Now, let me say something. You can hear this quote by Yancey and cry persecution 
right? But I think we need to take an honest look at ourselves first. Let me make something clear here. I've read enough of Yancey's books to know Yancey's point is not that we abandon our position on controversial issues like abortion because they're unpopular so that we can be more accepted by the world. That's not what Yancey is trying to say here. His point, though, is that as Christians in America, we've become known more for what we are against than what we are actually for. And that's a problem. My worry is that we're identified more right now by our political positions and the things that we fear rather than our good works. I can't think of many Americans if you were to ask them that, saying, what do you think of Christians? And their immediate gut reaction would be, oh, those people? Yeah, those are the ones that are always doing good works everywhere. (laughs) Do you know of any of your neighbors that would say that of Christians right now? I think we have somehow lost our way as a church and lost this call that Jesus has placed on our lives. Listen, I think it's undeniable at this point that America is rapidly moving to what we could just honestly call a post-Christian era, a post-Christian state. Very similar to what Europe experienced a few decades ago. The church is becoming increasingly marginalized and Christianity is being rejected. And I think the knee-jerk reaction is to fight back, to try to reclaim both the political and cultural influence that we once enjoyed for so many decades in this country. But in this season, what I am arguing is that I think the church needs to reclaim Jesus' mission to be the salt and the light of this world. Not by political power, but by the good works that we do. Even if that means we do them from a position of being marginalized and misunderstood, from a position of weakness in this culture, in this world. If we're going to point people to Jesus, what that means is we, we have to understand what this life of flourishing that Jesus offers us actually looks like. Can we articulate the vision of God's kingdom as presented by Jesus? And how does that vision of his kingdom speak into all of the different challenges and issues of our day today? Do we, in other words, believe that the Bible has anything meaningful to say about the things that matter most to this generation? How do I square what science says about evolution and the age of the earth with the young earth creationism that I was raised in from Sunday school? Am I complicit in systems of injustice and oppression by the things that I purchase online? Should I attend my gay coworker's wedding? How do I respond to this trend of asking people their preferred pronouns? And do I honor that? I think these types of questions that are really coming to the forefront in this generation 
make many of us very uncomfortable because we've never had to deal with them before. But what I would argue is this. We can't dodge them. We can't avoid them and look the other way. David Bosch says that mission is the mother of theology. And what he meant by that is that throughout church history, it was mission work that always clarified the theology of the church as Christians engaged with new cultures, encountering other worldviews, and they said, well, how are we going to respond to that? What do we believe over and against this worldview? And what I want to say is this. We need to avoid simplistic or politicized answers to some really complicated questions. And that is my fear right now is there's a sort of this climate in which everyone is offering simplistic answers to really difficult issues in our day. And, and the goal isn't even just engagement, is it? It's how do I actually witness my faith in the context of these conversations about gender and about all of the other things that are prevailing in our day right now? How does life with Jesus address these matters? Greg Okeson, in his book, A Public Missiology, uh, it feels very weird reading one of his quotes because he was actually my next-door neighbor when I taught at Scott Theological College uh, on staff with him there in Kenya. But he, write, he has actually written this really wonderful book called A Public Missiology, and he says, in an interesting turn of events, millennials in North America are currently rejecting the institutional church, in large part because they don't believe it's preparing them for living in a complex world. David Kinnaman and Allie Hawkins explain, to young Christians, the church can feel rigid and unreal. Christians' black and white views seem not to reflect the world as it really is. For these young people, matters concerning the world, relationships, and faith are rich and textured. Millennials compare the complexity they experience in the world with what they find in local churches and are discouraged by the disconnect. They yearn for thick faith to help them make sense of complexity in the world. Okison's point is that we're losing so many of our young people in this generation who don't think that the church has any meaningful answers to the complex questions that their generation is wrestling with. I think there's a lot of truth to that indictment of the church is that for most of us, we just get uncomfortable and just want to look the other way rather than really saying, how does my faith express itself in this context? The other thing that I want to say here is that I think the tendency is to apply this teaching uh, in a very, of being salt and light in a very individual, very personal way. How do I, as a person, be the salt and light? And that's important. That's, that's valid. But when Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, he actually says it in the plural. He's addressing a community, and I think that's important. Because I think his emphasis is not just how we as individuals obey this command, but how we come together as a redeemed community to be the salt and the light. In other words, Jesus didn't intend for this teaching to be obeyed simply as individuals, but as congregations, 
as the people of God together. What does it, in other words, collectively mean for us to impact the world? And I think in that sense, the church ought to stand as one of the great witnesses in this world of what a redeemed community really looks like. How do we overcome our idolatry and all of the tribalism and all of the ills of society that are causing so many of the problems in our day? Can we be better than that? Can we display through our love and acceptance of one another and the diversity that we experience in the body of Christ something greater than what the world experiences? And then even more so than that, how do we engage with the world as a community? D.A. Carson writes in his exposition of the Sermon on the Mount, prison reform, medical care, trade unions, control of a perverted and perverting liquor trade, abolition of slavery, abolition of child labor, establishment of orphanages, reform of the penal code. In all these areas, the followers of Jesus spearheaded the drive for righteousness. The darkness was alleviated. And this, I submit, has always been the pattern when professing Christians have been less concerned with personal prestige and more concerned with the norms of the kingdom. What Carson is arguing is the history of the church has been one in which we're not so focused on how are my rights being protected? How am I going to ensure my wealth and the good of my family, but instead taking the truth of this command to go into this world and be the salt of the light seriously, that the history of the church has been a remarkable one of so much transformation happening in society, spearheaded by the people of God. So that's what it means to be salt and light, to bring about redemption in creation itself that's not only limited to the church, And I think we in America, particularly in this moment in history, need to be less concerned about defending our rights, even if they are religious liberties, as Christians and trying to regain political power and focusing more on this call to simply do good works in Jesus' name and to show this world what redemption under the rule of Christ looks like by our service to them and the way that we love them. John Stott writes, Christians have too often interpreted their social responsibility in terms only of helping the casualties of a sick society and have done nothing to change the structures which cause the casualties. Just as doctors are concerned not only with the treatment of patients but also with preventative medicine and public health, so we too should, we should be concerned with what might be called preventative so- social medicine and high standards of moral hygiene. However small our part may be, we cannot opt out of seeking to create better social structures which guarantee justice and legislation and law enforcement, the freedom and dignity of the individual, civil rights for minorities, and the abolition of social and racial discrimination. We should neither despise these things nor avoid our responsibility for them. They are part of God's purpose for his people. Whenever Christians are conscientious citizens, they are acting like salt in the community. We need to take to heart what Stott is saying here. There are no simplistic answers. Politics gives us simplistic answers. But if we really love others, we will enter into the complexity that it means to try to solve these problems 
in our world. Let me share a bit of that in my own experience as a missionary to Kenya. For five years, we lived in Kenya as missionaries from 2004 until 2009. I was the medical director of a hospital there in a place called Capsuar. And uh, I kind of went in there with no clear agenda other than that I was a, a doctor and I wanted to heal people. But it didn't take long living in that community, in that village, to realize how complicated it was going to be to bring about the healing that I longed for among this tribe. The most glaring and obvious of those challenges was the AIDS epidemic that was exploding in Africa at the time. And so through a lot of prayer and some real miracles, we were able to start this clinic. This picture here shows this first group of community health nurses that we trained to go into the village to care for AIDS patients. And so it was awesome. We had antiretroviral drugs, and people who had a death sentence from AIDS were actually almost resurrected watching them gain weight and overcome their opportunistic infections and recover health. And, and it was just amazing, and yet it was this discovery that that in and of itself cannot solve the AIDS epidemic. Why was this epidemic happening in the first place? It was not just about medications to the right people. It was about the values that the society was espousing. And what the AIDS epidemic exposed was that there was rampant promiscuity outside of the marriage covenant happening in Africa. And so we began to go to the secondary schools, the high schools, and get to the youth and start talking to them about God's plan and purpose for sex in the context of marriage. And it was really awesome to see how the youth were responding to that in the face of an AIDS epidemic that was happening right before their eyes. None of them were unscathed from it. Almost all of them had a relative who had died from AIDS. And somewhere in there, we had the opportunity to talk about God's plan for their life. We were running short of nurses because the government was snatching them all the time. And as a result of that, we started a nursing school to try to supply the hospital with an adequate sourcing of nurses, opening up a mortuary where those who had passed away could be kept in time for a funeral to be scheduled. One of the things that I discovered in my first couple months there was that they don't circumcise their boys when they're born. They circumcise them when they're teenagers without any anesthesia, and it's brutal. They just take them into the forest, and they drink a lot of beer, and then they do the procedure, and they spend the month in the forest, these men and these boys. And, um, and when I found this out, you know, we thought, like, wow, what if we could offer a Christian alternative to this and do the circumcision under sterile technique to reduce the risk of infection, but not just so that we don't see all these infected boys in the hospital, but so that we could actually show them an alternative view of what manhood is, what the Bible says it means to be a man. If you go to the next slide there, you can see this is our first class of circumcised boys that we circumcised at the hospital. And we gave them certificates of manhood right there, and they're all holding them proudly. They're actually still healing from the procedure, so most of them kind of manspreading there, and they're not, they're not very comfortable in that moment. But it was awesome. We held them there for two weeks in a camp where we had local pastors come in and teach them about what it means to serve their wives 
and their children rather than this hyper-masculine view that's often prevalent uh, in those societies and saying what it means to, to care for others and, and to show masculinity in what often is labeled as feminine qualities. And it, and it just, the list goes on and on. I mean, one of the most horrid things was to encounter female circumcision or otherwise known as uh, female genital mutilation and beginning to see those young girls coming to the hospital uh, with botched procedures that were being done in the village and fighting against that and, and trying to rescue these girls from being mutilated like that. The, the list went on and on and the more time I spent in Kapsawar, in Kenya, the more I realized how challenging it is to make a difference when it comes to healthcare and poverty and all of these other things that needed to be addressed in a place like Kenya. And I, I think when we think about all that, it just seems overwhelming. And I think it's very understandable why we want simplistic answers, right? We want simple solutions. But I think if we really are the salt and light of this world, if we really love others, then we have to be willing to do the homework and do a deep dive and understand what are the roots of the sins that plague our country, our neighborhoods, our society. And what does it mean to clothe ourselves with the compassion of Jesus and really love people and show them God's heart for them? Do we have the will to engage in that mission of seeing what that means. I think one of the most exciting things we've done here at ICC is that in the midst of a pandemic, we've started this pantry, food pantry ministry. And we, we have, I think, about like at least a quarter of the church signed up for it. Frankly, I wish everyone in our church would volunteer for this program because I'm just so heartened by what I see because very similar to these things I'm sharing about Kenya, I'm sort of seeing playing out here in wheeling right here. And the truth is, even as we started this pantry, there was some hesitancy in my heart, if I'm really honest, going, what difference can a small church like ours really make when we talk about food scarcity? But we started this ministry, and it's been really exciting to see already the impact that it's making and the learning and the growth that we're having through this. You know, one of the things we discovered was that uh, most of the people coming to us were, were of Hispanic origin. And so when we try to engage with them, most of us don't have fluent enough Spanish uh, to be able to really engage in deeper conversation with them. So we reached out to Nueva Vida, who also worships here, which is a Spanish-speaking congregation, and they were excited about it. They were going, this is exactly what we want to do. And so it's created this awesome partnership with the, the Nueva Vida people there. And now they're coming and they're helping to staff a lot of the tables where we're getting into conversation for them with them. One of the things we're discovering is that there's not a lot of pasta and other things being taken. They want more fresh foods. And so we bought a freezer and we're stocking that now with frozen meats and with vegetables and things like that and fruits to give away to them. We are exploring how can we help them to understand uh, maybe how these other foods that they're not used to could be eaten. So we've just recently embarked on this whole Costco-style samples thing, right, where we're trying to create recipes and, and setting it out there and saying, try it and see if this canned pork is edible or not. And people said, you know, Carol from staff says, it's really good, you know, this, this canned pork, you know, it's actually pretty tasty, okay? 
Um, we're now doing this back-to-school drive for the students to give them backpacks and school supplies. We're now also partnering with a legal firm to try to offer help for undocumented workers and say, is there any hope for you to become uh, a legal citizen of this country? It has also initiated deeper conversations. Pastor Chris, our youth pastor, actually initiated saying, our pantry is really the best way to address food scarcity. And there's a whole other conversation there, isn't it? Is maybe pantries alone are not the solution, but we have to look at the deeper societal dysfunctions that cause the need for pantries to exist in our society. What I'm saying is, as a church, we need to really wrestle with what does it mean to be salt and light in our world? And there are no easy, simplistic answers. It's going to require a wholehearted commitment to really love somebody well rather than just something that tugs at our heartstrings and makes us feel good about ourselves. But my prayer is that ICC would be a church that is fully committed to that calling of Jesus, to be that kind of church. And my worry is the pandemic has sort of driven us in the exact opposite direction of becoming so self-focused, of becoming so protective of our own, our family, my kids, and I want to make sure that we're safe, we're okay. And safety is important. I'm not going to knock that. But if we don't understand this fundamental call of God to be salt and light, then we have lost something essential about our identity as followers of Jesus. And so as I close my message today, can I simply challenge you with that personal reflection for your own life? In your walk with God, in all of the things that we ask of him to do, in all of the prayers and all of our worship and in everything that constitutes our Christian life, what part of that represents you making an impact to the world around you? In the name of Christ, let's pray. We're going to come to the Lord's table here in a minute, but I just want to give you a moment of reflection and prayer before we do so. And I want to invite you to think about this teaching. Jesus says, you and only you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of this world. Jesus is saying, I have no plan B. The church is it. You represent me in a dark and fallen world. And I think as I look at the church landscape, as, a, as I look at the whole national landscape, it's not a really pretty picture right now. I think for many in the church, we feel threatened. We feel like it's an existential crisis right now for our very survival. We worry about the school systems our kids are being educated in. And listen, these are valid concerns. But I think we have lost something if all that matters is how God is going to help us and protect us and serve us. What does it mean even as we are sensing that we are becoming more and more marginalized and frankly even despised by the broader culture? 
to actually love those who are near to us, our neighbors, our coworkers, the people that surround us and don't know Jesus. What an awesome thing that would be if in the next couple decades, we as the people of God could radically transform this trend and that in 10, 20 years from now, the most common remark made by even those outside the churches, those Christians, yeah, those are the quirky, weird ones who are always helping other people out. And I don't really get why they do that. They're kind of strange in that way, but I kind of appreciate it. It kind of moves me to say, see what these Christians do with their lives. Would you just pray for a moment and say, God, I want to be that light that shines for you. I want to be that salt that salts this earth and lets people know of a good God who loves them. We just pray that for a minute and then we'll come to the table and take communion together. As we come to this table and take this bread and take this cup, it's a reminder to us that anything that we desire to give to others must always be given to us first from God. And Christ, in John 6, declares himself to be the bread of life. And he invites us to eat from him, his body, and that's what we want to do this morning as we think about what it means to be transforming agents in society. It feels overwhelming, doesn't it? It feels more than any of us can do on our own strength. That's why we want to respond to this message by coming to the table and saying, God, nourish me. Let me simply represent your heart to this world. Because of what you have done for me, I want to give myself to the world for the glory of God and however you want to use me. Let's go ahead and take first from the bread and then you can go ahead and drink from the cup and then you can just pray for a few minutes here and uh, our worship team will lead us in a time of response to singing.